my interests in architecture were also about the classic tension between minimalism and excess. And so I fell in love with looking at Robert Ryman and Viennese action artists, you know, at the same time. And and uh, while I, I didn't know the theories of them very well, because it was above my station at that time, just understanding them in their pure contrast allowed me even to think about architecture that way. Hello, everyone. This is Amelia Taylor-Hawkberg, Editorial Manager for Archonnect. Just last week, we premiered the second season of Archonnect Sessions in a tighter, shorter format, and are so excited this week to also be launching a brand new podcast focusing exclusively on interviews. We're calling it one-to-one, and we'll be talking with architects from all over the professional and geographical map. Our first episode, airing Monday, November 9th, features an interview I did with Neil Denari this past September. He stopped by our Pasadena studio on his way to lecture at SciArc. SciArc, by the way, helps organize this interview, so thank you so much, SciArc. Shortly after I spoke with Neil, he was on his way to the Aarhus School of Architecture in Denmark to exhibit a film he had made about Los Angeles, part of a solicited contribution to the school's 50th anniversary celebration. His Los Angeles-based firm, NMDA, has worked all over the world on projects at many scales, with Denari himself licensed in both New York and California. From 1997 to 2001, Denari served as Dean of SciArc, managing a critical period that brought the school to a new location in downtown Los Angeles' Arts District. He now teaches at UCLA. I spoke with Neil about balancing practice and teaching, what writing can do for architecture, and his reflections on Los Angeles. We'll post more info about this week's one-to-one in the show notes. Enjoy. As I always tell my students, you know, I'm a professor because I want to learn more than you do. <laughs> and uh, that's not my quote. That's That's been out there for a long time, you know, that we teach because we're obsessive. Uh, learners and never feeling like an expert. You know what I mean? You can never, and also you can never learn what you get from going to the site after it's been built. You see how people interact with it in ways you couldn't have possibly predicted. Yeah. I I think that uh, watching people, seeing uh, what they pay attention to and and literally being a kind of anthropologist or a casual observer at one level, because this is uh, the built world is what we is what I learn from more than you know imagining fictitious environments that that I'm crossing my fingers thinking are cool that people will love. I definitely don't trust myself that much. Uh, I, I like to take in as much field research as possible. And so you travel a fair amount, um, yes, and um, to lecture and to visit sites and such. Are you able to keep that kind of that I, that constantly improving, wanting to learn I throughout the stresses of traveling and through visiting and having a, some type of objective to actually visit a space? Yes. I mean, it, it varies from, you know, trip to trip sometimes, uh, oddly enough. I mean, when I go lecture, I've got more time than, let's say, if it's a project-related trip to go to Vancouver, for instance. Uh, it might be literally sort of up and back, but over time, I'll learn more about the city. But it really is one of the great um, I would say perks, as it were, of of being somebody who's fortunate enough where people want you to come and speak to them physically in space and in an intimate setting, as opposed to just look at things online and, and um, to hear what your latest conversation is, to not take advantage of that, to do whatever investigations that, you know, and into environment. And sometimes I might go to a city and not worry about seeing some monument. And uh, let's say somebody might take me around and I'll say, let's just drift. And I do a lot of street photography and do a lot of documentation of, of things. Sometimes if it's 
you know, like Guadalajara or something, I'll want to go out of town and see uh, Carmen Pino's tower and then, you know, go into the city and drift the rest of the day and go watch people do things on the street or go visit a ceramicist or something like that. So uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to have, you know, more than my share of, of uh, exploration paid for by other people. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably some type of almost field research to bring back into whatever you're then doing for projects at the firm for onward teaching work. Are there particular cities that you find to be consistently inspiring for informing your work outside of actually which cities you're building in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are. I, London would be one. London, I make it there a couple times a year and I don't have any projects there. My favorite Premier League team, soccer team, is in London. So I'll go see a match uh, once a year. And and in fact, I consider, I, I, I mentioned that because I consider soccer to be, you know, as an international uh, sport, it's also a language that connects, I would say, me as, a, as an American. I feel more like a global citizen since I'm a soccer fanatic. To understand that side of what drives, let's say, groups and, and people on the street in a place like London. But I can also, at the same time, I'm constantly astonished at the level of, um, let's say, graphic design and infrastructure in London and in the city. That too, I think, is always going on in a place like uh, Amsterdam, you know, where those kinds of systems of communication are really strong because the cities are connected by uh, mass transportation. In the case of Amsterdam, it's almost like a village and, you know, there's a physicality to it. And, and some of these things are antidotes to Los Angeles and the distancing effect and so forth. So I do feel like I'm looking for other things, you know, that don't mirror you know, what we have. And, and uh, there's always something interesting to look at at London over the last 10 or 15 years in terms of architecture, whether it's, you know, the towers that are going on or Zaha's projects or even architects who aren't well known, who are doing more vernacular work like housing and things like that. I really love seeing, you know, what's going on with all of that and then the museums and the shows. So that's one world and other cities like Ljubljana in, in uh, Slovenia, uh, you know, not really that far out of the way. I've been there a number of times and feel a lot of connection to what's going on there in terms of politics and architecture and a completely different landscape. You can walk across the city in, in you know, 45 minutes. So the whole array, I could go on and on about it. But you've chosen to stay in L.A. and you get to constantly kind of pick and um, conserve and reflect on what you're experiencing in other cities to kind of bring back here. What is it about L.A. that's entranced you enough to stay? <laughs> well, you know, I came here to fulfill a, a kind of a childhood mission growing up in Texas, landlocked and in the 1960s. And so the exotica, you know, of what got sent out even before digital media, TV and music and so forth. And via New York, New York became and, and still is a, a benchmark of a certain type. I don't say that it's the benchmark for cities, because the one thing that we need to acknowledge and recognize and, and I think shout out to the world is that, you know, we have 16 and a half, 17 million people in a 60 mile radius. I don't care what the morphology is, right? This is a world city. It may have its difficulties or, you know, less than, than true utopic, you know, kind of um, 
form in a way. So I think I, I'm here because not only do I get to use these other cities as benchmarks, but I think I'm here because I really think it's the unsolved, you know, urban mystery in a way. And if I said something like, I don't want to live in a city that presents itself to you as a finished historical project, but to, you know, be an American, not to provincialize anything, but being an American architect in Los Angeles is sort of the ultimate challenge, the ultimate position. You find yourself wondering about solutions, defending the the human economies of uh, intelligence and knowledge, which I think are unparalleled. And I do think people are a big part of of LA, which is which is different than just constantly analyzing its physical form. The highest level of diversity in the world, uh, the human knowledge and intelligence, and, and you know, at the upper stratas of of uh, knowledge production, are are incredible. And as a professor, I get to interact with you know a lot of that. So there's so much going on here that I can't imagine not being an architect here. Yeah, I can imagine that for potential students and people who are interested in studying architecture to go to a place like Los Angeles without this kind of thing is hanging over your head constantly of a of a standard you know you can never meet in ways there's something happening in LA that allows people to feel that they have that liberty to go and try whatever they need to try and i'm sure you saw uh the kind of the vanguard of that working with in Cyark um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your time at Cyark and leading the school and what the atmosphere was like at that time kind of when in the um, late 90s i believe mm-hmm. um towards working towards um, a new kind of architecture for the school it was uh, definitely a pivotal moment. Of course, it was questions not only among the board of directors, but to a certain extent of the of the more senior figures, you know, who, who had helped found the school of a tension between institutional identity of, you know, the garage project, right? The, the DYI project, the nonconformist project. And then it was, what, 25 years in at that point when I took over. And of course, the first thing that I had to do that became almost the only thing that I was uh, working on was to move the school and, you know, find a permanent home and so forth. And what was interesting was that the idea of owning a building seemed to be at odds with, you know, what was going on. And I just said, We'll own a building. It'll just be a garage. Don't worry. Uh, we'll still be a garage able to... for a train. <laughs> <laughs> a garage for a train is what it turned out to be a very long one. And maybe being a, a, let's say, a different generation, you know, by 10, 15 years than, you know, people who had who had led the school before, in the case of Ray, like 30 years. Maybe I just had a different idea about what did it mean to see LA in, this, in the way in which I was just talking about it, which is larger than itself. And so finding a way to give it permanence, but at the same time, conceptually destabilize it and actually make it more more vulnerable to outside forces and global forces and just expand it and make it more vulnerable rather than understand that the audience for the school is already a pre-selected set of people who want to talk in a like-minded fashion. I believe I was the one who, who opened that door you know, for the school to the idea that part of our job, if not our inherent interest, is to expand the audience, but not to automatically assume that that means a populist position or a conciliatory position or anything like that. I've always been somebody who 
while I've made, you know, I've been in, in, in the world of academics uh, my whole career, being a practicing architect and really pushing into the world and, and wanting to be vulnerable that way, I've always seen that. I've never believed in, in uh, autonomy, you know, in terms of architecture. And I don't think that, that the founders of SciArc did that. It was alternative, not autonomous. And the fear would be that it would become aut autonomous. And I wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So that was both, I think, the feeling and also what my my mission was. And I think it's been taken up by the school. And I think it's not a problem that is unique to SciArc really anymore in any way and or really never was. But in how architectural institutions are trying to adapt to new educational models. And we see it just with higher education in general becoming, at least in the U.S., this kind of downing of quality and upping of price. Um, and so an overall problem with how to still make architectural education completely inspiring and necessary while also adopting um, an attitude like Cyrex that we need to have this alternative focus and we need to provide something else. And you're also a tenured faculty at UCLA, um, yes. obviously a very different educational institution to be a part of, mm -hmm. um, built into the UC system and such. I was wondering how your role there influences particularly your work um, at your firm and how, and particularly in regards to young architects. Mm -hmm. So you're teaching explicitly in a, as a professor, but you're also teaching as a person at the firm and as a leader of the firm. How do you see these new architects coming in? What are their main concerns? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that at UCLA, which is which is not SciArc, and, and I believe has a different outlook and a different, in a way, constituency, and the students who choose to go between the two schools have a, you know, different idea about it. I think that what UCLA has done, especially if you look back to Sylvia Levin's uh, time as chair, which was from the mid-90s to the mid-aughts, and then that established, I think, a very, very strong, robust design culture that wasn't quite like that incarnation in, you know, the history of the school, which was, you know, the school was born in the mid-60s, um, like a lot of other schools. And, and uh, it was it was about, you know, alternative practice even back then, a lot of social stuff, a lot of spatial psychology and so forth. By the time Hitoshi Abe gets here and he's coming from Japan, uh, pretty prolific, you know, as an architect building uh, and starting the super studio on the ideas campus, you know, for a specific, you know, post-professional set of students to really try to engage in a way that on the one hand, SciArc being an outsider school you know, wanted wanted to kind of adopt that idea since it's not a, a, a program that's even now a supported program by the state funding. But if you take that and then you take the, let's say the students are coming through the, you know, MARC 1 program, I think what they're looking for on the one hand are questions about, well, what's architecture, you know, going forward and how can I practice it? I think that generally, based on what's taught, the medium of architecture is still the primary realm of experimentation and focus. The Ideas Campus expands all that. You know, Tom is doing Haiti research and, and, and so forth. But sort of on campus, I think that the issue of I might become a scenario planner, I might become a graphic designer, I might become a cinematographer was a little bit more the case, you know, when the economy was more in doubt and you know how these things work, they they shift and change based on on viability of, you know, making a living. I think that the that the the, the medium of architecture is still the primary focus. How somebody might practice, though, I think is is more open ended 
you know, around that, whether they go to Europe and, you know, spend 15 years and work for somebody like Herzog, or I think a lot of students, which is, I don't know if it's surprising or not, say they want to teach, hmm. you know, um, while they're in school. And, and I think uh, UCLA, while we use the medium of architecture, I think pretty centrally, uh, I think there's also the idea that we are teaching people how to teach, you know, for the future in a way. So I'm seeing the gamut you know, in terms of what, you know, students are looking for. And I think also what's interesting is we don't have a landscape department, which I believe is growing in terms of, you know, applicants for design at places like Harvard and, and uh, Toronto. And um, so we've become more sensitive to teach ideas of urbanism and, and landscape, if not officially, than uh, folding all of that into the curriculum in a way. I've been teaching tower projects the last couple of years, and I talk about them purely almost in terms of urban ideas and not about, um, not, not strictly about iconography or signature or, or pure um, identity making, but, you know, about issues of density and whether, let's say, a city like LA should have more of them. Mm. So when teaching, especially with something as often victimized by that kind of icon culture as like a tower, mm-hmm. for teaching students and giving them that that basis of form to work around, what are the other main concerns that you have them think about? Like one of the things that we're constantly discussing with practitioners and students is the not just the social minded aspect of design, but just how to come into something from a holistic perspective and keep that you mentioned the naivete earlier, keep that naivete around a project as fresh as possible. So that when you're moving from different project to different project, you don't become hardened by what you think you know is already the case. How do you keep that freshness (laughs) when you're (laughs) teaching students, especially about towers? Right. I think that um, it's really important as a teacher, and this this is after doing it for 30 years, I think providing a context for, let's say, why you would engage the students in something, you know, in particular. So I don't say choose me, do a tower and just be an expert on that. And then you walk away and you don't even know what the context of it is. And I think so what I do, you know, when I begin a, a, a year or a course is I talk about economies and politics uh, before I even talk about typologies and, you know, craft and technique and all of those things to try to expand their, their skill set. I want to do that too. But the most important thing I can think about is how can I create an awareness of the value of, let's say, building typologies or mark a difference between a tower as a um, symbol and, you know, a tower as a as a as a compressor of space and, you know, in a, in a, in a purely organizational manner and then find not how they stay unhinged, but how they, you know, come together. And I think about this in my office because these are the things that, you know, we're engaged with um, anytime we do a project. It's, it's fortunate because we're always asked to make a difference, you know, somehow. We're not an office where people say, I want to take the safe route and you know, just produce something that will go into the background. So I transfer the um, demand and the interest in, I think, a whole range of, of issues. So that's how I would say I make it fresh. And I also, I think, give them more long lasting, you know, tools. I don't, they'll learn software, but I'm not really software driven as a, as a professor. And we'll learn about issues of energy and sustainability, you know, within that building type. But 
everything changes, you know, technically so fast that I'm I'm trying to leave them with ways to research and think, you know, uh, about the work. And I also oscillate between doing really strict building design studios and then doing really large kind of urban speculation projects where we're dealing with fictions and, and uh, scenarios and less about form. And that range also reflects my own interest in, in, in our work, in our office. Something that is but we notice, and it's hard to say whether this is actually like a provable theory, but when the recession was hitting architects really hard and people who had just graduated were looking for work, they were finding new ways to capitalize on their education. So either going into, as you said, like kind of alternative design practices and using their tools for just other purposes or still calling them architects themselves architects, but kind of charting out new weird territories that are now becoming more and more understood and actually accepted. But now that the economy is picking back up, has picked back up, and those architects who had previously charted out on their own to try some alternative practice have the opportunity now to kind of come back into the fold in a, in a way. Do you see that in your office of having an influence from both students who might have had an un, a different understanding of what architecture could be because of these alternative practices that came out of the recession? Um, and also just practitioners who are, you are now hiring who lived through it and have might have had their ideas about architecture changed in the midst of it? Mm -hmm. I think there's a range. I, I couldn't, you know, generalize completely. But if you think about if you were in school or recently graduated and, you know, the the recession hits and, you know, you can't find work, whether that then produces a, a new spirit for, you know, being an entrepreneur or going and doing something else, whether it's forced on you or desperation or thinking that, you know, design education in the most optimistic sense would allow you to you know, go live a creative life. I, I, I did think that there was the idea that working on projects that were interesting, that had some social mission and that engaged design in some way was really all that mattered. You know, the medium of building wasn't the be all and end all. And that might have changed. And since the economy's gotten better and that if you go study architecture and you know that architecture doesn't really go away. It, it morphs and changes, but buildings keep getting built. And, and um, you know, when you see cranes in cities and you, those cranes are generally associated with developer projects and you know that money is flowing back in and that's what cities are built on. There's only X number of museums and palaces and all of that stuff. And to, to build a city, you have to directly engage in the economy. I, I'm not so sure that for a certain sector, having the ambition to have your own office and to go through the trials and tribulations of building. I, st I do think that, that a lot of young graduates think that's a pretty daunting thing. In other words, I think architecture as in and of itself is, has been re-embraced at, at so many levels, but I don't think anybody now graduating feels condemned so to speak. I mean that in a funny double entendre, like that's the only thing you can do is go still be an architect. Maybe they would say, I'd like to be involved in architecture, but if I'm only doing this part of it. So I'm not so sure that there are that many young graduates who are going out to start their own offices again or want to start their own office because that's very difficult. Or if they go work for an office, whether they will spin off or emerge, you know, to their own practice. I think there will always be a few where really doing buildings is, is, you know, that's the best thing you can do. And you'll take the 
those trials and tribulations and the miracles that have to go along with it to to be a part of it. So I, I think it's still pretty scattered right now in terms of how future graduates or recent graduates will will practice. I I think you're right though. I think there's there is a re-embrace of of architecture since it's possible again. Right, the possibility as long yeah. as there's some some money backing it up that can yeah. inspire a lot. Yeah, in your just day to day life of balancing both working in the firm and teaching. How do those two spheres influence one another? More and more, I think the office is informing um, the teaching. And that's probably natural at some level because 10 or 15 years ago, let's say right after I, you know, stepped down at SciArc and didn't really have any work and, you know, just kind of starting a little bit from scratch because prior to that was research projects and didn't really have a building office, you know, together. So how I thought about teaching and my work, let's say when I was in my 30s or early 40s, was I wanted the studio stuff to be really different. And now I don't give studio projects in which I'm already know the answer. And, you know, I'm the expert and they're the learner, not not at all. But for instance, i might not be doing tower studios if we weren't, you know, engaged in in that issue personally. But I take it outside of our own office and it's a completely generic problem or possibility, you know, for architecture. And I'm also interested in in them working on projects for which defy whatever they might think of themselves in the future, like, oh, well, I'll only be a small architect and I'll never do a tower because that's just not who I am or what I'm going to be. And I'm, I will tell them, even if I thought or didn't think that when I was, you know, graduating from school, the best thing I said was I won't limit myself, you know, in terms of what could happen, you know, as a practitioner. So I think, I think they're, they're joining up more and more, but not, I don't teach them like in-house techniques and, and, uh, proprietary things, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to generate student power Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So I think more and more just feeling a bit like as the work becomes, you know, bigger in scale, takes on more obvious conditions, you know, to work in. That's why I think I talk as much about social and political, you know, conditions as much as I do about, well, how does your plan work? And, I, I wasn't teaching in that mode, I think, 15 years ago. And to return a little bit to your own education, after you got your BRC at University of Houston, going to the GSD to study, you were also involved quite heavily in philosophy of art. Is that correct? Yes. I don't really even know where to start asking you about that, but I just well, want to know. Well, you're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, still don't get that, ma- don't have that master's degree. But what was your motivation, if you can even recall that? Like, why why did that feel important to you at the time to involve that kind of education alongside architecture? I grew up in a family that was, you know, they were, my parents were art lovers and and I was fortunate and I probably went to every major museum east of the Mississippi River by the time I was 10 years old. We weren't wealthy. We just, you know, took a trip and and my dad just made sure that we were going to, they, they were just obsessed with it. So I was exposed to it. And I correlated art, you know, in the classic sense of, of you know, the, un, the artist as the unfettered life of being able to, you know, just intuitively give expression, you know, to something. And oddly enough, while they were more focused on appreciating uh, representational work, maybe just as a defiant, you know, kid, I was looking at Barnett Newman and 
and uh, Lee Bontaku and, you know, just people like that in the 1960s and was drawn to it. So it just stayed with me as time went by. And when I got into college, just being the type of person that I was, and I got my first subscription to Art Forum, it's not a boast. It's just sort of like, <laughs> okay, well, I hadn't even been to New York. And just looking at the first 50 pages of, you know, uh, gallery ads of what was going on, it just, you know, just intuitively it felt like, okay, well, I can learn something about representation that isn't, you know, strictly taught to me. I know how to do an ink axonometric. Well, what else is there? And uh, I could sort of track it, you know, through a lot of things just in terms of um, relational ideas and uh, my interests in architecture were also uh, about the classic tension between minimalism and excess. And so I fell in love with looking at Robert Ryman and Viennese action artists, you know, at the same time. And and uh, while I, I didn't know the theories of them very well, because it was above my my station at that at that time, just understanding them in their pure contrast allowed me even to think about architecture that way. That's incredibly helpful, though, just to say that you could you had this almost like primitive response to it without knowing any of the theory, because that's also most of the self-conscious attack on those types of arts is that they require some type of booklet to accompany them (laughs) so that you can understand them because the only way you can appreciate them is understanding them, which is, of Mm -hmm. course, a little bit uh, also um, a justification applied to a lot of architectural critiques that, oh, this is something that you just have to understand better. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that throughout that kind of exposure and interest as it led you through your education, that was also a gave you kind of like a framework to also kind of think about architectural ideas through? Is that more or less? No, absolutely. I mean, the time period of undergrad, like when the New York Five were going on, I mean, if you if you if you dared tried to read Chomsky, you're for, forget it. And, you know, you would just take sort of face value ideas, you know, on that. If if I remember picking up Michael Fried or Rosalind Krauss and just not being able to, because I didn't have a teacher, you know, or, con, you know, total autodidact at that level. But as time, you know, went by and then finished uh, grad school, and I did have a, um, a very, my most influential teacher was an Austrian expatriate painter, he is, uh, named Paul Rotterdam, and he taught in the VES program, and I taught, I, I took art theory and drawing with him. I mean, they were survey classes and a little bit more intimate setting and drawing. And I finally had enough, I think, maturity to be able to get a lot of the issues about what I had intuitively, you know, sort of thought about, whether it was Ryman and process and substance and not about the subject matter and what the differences between those were. But I think that your thought about, you know, audience, and especially in architecture, and, and do you need to decode things or is it embedded in the work and how does the work communicate? And, and if you love it, how do you know it won't alienate? And, you know, just what's transmitted. I've learned a lot, you know, through this kind of parallel discourse. And by the time, you know, year 10 of Art Forum, I'm, I'm finally getting, you know, what's connected and what's unhinged and what's autonomous. And, and what doesn't lead toward a, a clearer representation of the work. It's exciting now because it just seems there's so many more forums and spaces for people to talk about architecture and hear about architecture and, and see architecture in a way that I kind of can't imagine being as saturated in pre-internet age. Just like it's harder to come by. You'd have to know where to look. And now it's just everywhere for better and for worse. Yes. And it's too early to really make any claim like that anyway. But you do have this kind of new 
very loud population of people that feel very comfortable sharing their very opinionated ideas about architecture and especially about new architecture. And oftentimes they're, they may be interested in theory and might have be familiar with it, but there, there isn't necessarily that same level of shared discourse that you can find at a university or you can find within a certain practice in a city or so. So I'm wondering, obviously you've done a lot of academic writing and you also publish, but what is your ongoing firm's relationship with theory and how do you kind of like struggle through that and find the the benefits in both in the day to day. The things that I'm interested in actually are it's it's almost uh, self reflexive to the terms that we were just talking about, which is architecture as a as a media or as a medium, and um, in what state is it in you know in the digital world, and in essence, some of the theories that go into the work, like how the how architecture should be. Um, not a resistant medium, but a collaborative medium with with issues of um, ephemerality and illusion or the graphic, which those are the things that I spend most of my time, quote unquote, theorizing. I first set up the problem, which is we had better make architecture, you know, work and be collaborative rather than resistive in the world. It needs to work and be in its in its own realm and its own medium. But the idea of I don't practice it as a as a guardian of the real. And um, so therefore, thinking about how to communicate that, I want to say in very, very direct ways where the very subject matter is of concern to a lay person as it is to uh, a practitioner, which is what is the medium of space? What's the level of how, how do we get in entertainment, distraction, infotainment, education, and all of that? And where does architecture, I'm truly obsessed with that as a question and actually trying to turn, let's say, the language of our work and the sort of art form of the work to become purposeful within that field, as opposed to just trying to produce difference or signature or personality or autonomy. It may have aspects of that because I recognize the singularity of our work. But it's coming out of the very issues of of how do we how do we communicate? And I think that architecture is about communicating. It may not communicate the way a blog or a text communicates or a story, but it is a medium that goes well beyond becoming a shelter or a background for, you know, our lives on screen in a way. Definitely in LA, that's for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so what are some projects you're working on right now? Oh, goodness. Uh, our biggest project is a port terminal project in Keelung, Taiwan. We won a competition three years ago, and uh, that's been uh, on the verge of going into construction for a while. These huge projects are complicated and they don't sail through. And that's something that I think has been a project because of its scale and its location has encapsulated a lot of these, you know, issues and questions about communication. And I think we won the project because we, if we didn't do it perfectly, we did it well enough in the issue of what would we say as architects in a particular site to a city, to a region as LA architects, what would we say, even if we were speaking a foreign language, right? Uh, how could we communicate? How could we make sure that when we bowed to somebody in Asia and they stick out their hand and it's a kind of culture class of understanding what customs and rituals are? It's not just critical regionalism or anything like that because we don't practice that way. But making making things mean something, uh, it's, a, it's a treacherous you know, set of terms because architects are can be phobic about that. 
the idea that you would be imposing some type of meaning on the site or through the project is something that you would impose it, but also even if you were trying to, to, to excavate it, you know, somebody might say, well, there's nothing there, nothing truly there to excavate. You're not really doing forensics, you know, as, as architect can't be that. And I admit to, you know, a gap uh, between, you know, intention and resolution. I think that the medium is too big and broad and coarse, and it's not a, like a finely fit glove around, you know, theory. I think we all understand that. But I'm sure when, you know, I was doing sort of theoretical projects in my 30s, I was more thinking about, you know, the world of industry and sameness. And then, you know, that sort of turned into a project uh, about dealing with the univocal nature of, let's say, digital technology in the 90s, right? Every company said the same thing, you know, buy our tools and you'll be able to go where you want. And feeling like um, somewhere between you know, the empathy of the loss of the local and voice and all of that, but never being an architect who said, well, I'll go to the site and I'll just build with whatever materials are, you know, local or available. And in a world today where, you know, it is a global enterprise. We've learned a lot on that. We're doing two tower projects in Vancouver, a city that, you know, is long known or 30 years now into kind of high rise identity in a city that still has suburban tendencies. And we have uh, very good clients who want to bring small apartments to a broader segment of the public because, you know, these projects help drive the economy on the one hand and raise prices. But uh, the things we've been working on are, I would say, a kind of contemporary capsule tower, not about plug in and plug out, but just simply all the apartments will be completely built out. They're only 350 square feet. They're for first time buyers, you know, out of out of college or or what have you. And uh, um, they range between 25 and 30 stories and mixed use projects. We're doing a project in the West Side for Wildwood. It's a private school for middle and high school uh, mm-hmm. students in West LA. And so we're involved in their brilliant, very, very progressive, liberal way of thinking, collaborative thinking about education. They teach their students to, I think, go do good things in the world and not really become the wolf of Wall Street. And um, that's the kind of client that we, you know, like. So those are some of the things we're doing. Working any type of academic project for an architect, I imagine being like we were talking earlier about Tom Main's work on the Caltech campus, but certainly also early education or high school education, doing those types of institutional projects seems like one of the also craziest uh, storm of different pedagogical theories working around of like how you should structure the space, how you structure the navigation and flow and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that just strikes me as like we could have a whole other conversation about like the thought process behind putting that together. We could. <laughs> I also just wanted to, because our listeners unfortunately don't have a tie directly into the Archonnect office at all times, but earlier we were talking about um, a presentation you're going to do at uh, Aarhus University in Denmark with a, a film you made about Los Angeles. Can you mm-hmm, talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that film? Mm-hmm. We were we were just, we, the architects, invited for the 50th anniversary of Aarhus uh, su- submit a film. And, and um, my first thought, because they said, oh, it should maybe be about your work in the building and so forth, a uh, building. And, and I thought to do that, we'd have to go, you know, construct that film. And, and um, it just struck me that I should really talk about Los Angeles and make this a sort of love letter 
about Los Angeles to Los Angeles in this film and then give it back as a as a sort of happy 50th to uh, Aarhus because a number of architects have have gone back and forth through the school and given lectures and and been invited you know to do things and um, they asked me actually to give the the 50th anniversary lecture unfortunately I'm going to be in 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 Albania next week um and uh, that's when you want to clone yourself for sure. Yes, uh, or upload your brain to a yeah, computer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's work on that. They are. <laughs> uh, um, so the uh, so the little film is is uh, about the idea of Los Angeles is why we love it is because it's eccentric and and not perfect and its its beauty is is defective its dreams are given new life every day and broken the next and um, there's a persistence to it of attractiveness and so a sense i'm describing the city as a as as a, a really incredibly lovable place but for not the classical reasons you know no postcards involved even though we can conjure postcard images of LA. There's 17 million dystopias in, inside our heads, you know, uh, of what the city is. And I just think that that's what I wanted to give to to the EU about, you know, LA right now. So I, I hope we can share it with you uh, at some point. It's definitely something our listeners and soon to be watchers, if we can get this video, would love to see. And also just as a comparison point to any Danish city, but any, but particularly someplace like Aarhus that you have you know, a metropolitan region of over 10 million people in a country, and then compared to a country like Denmark of five and a half million people in the entire nation and, and the whole nation and the whole nature of a, of a urban space built on social democratic systems that help things along in the way that they don't exactly hear. And I, I've spoken to a bunch of people who are very, who agree with this idea of LA and, and have it be, and also have, it's their reason for being here mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I always wonder, like, if that premise, with that premise, is it even possible to solve LA? <laughs> Would we want to if we could? Or if we do, will it turn into some place that is altogether terrible, however, altogether functioning in a certain way? So that's not a specific interview question. That's just a rhetorical question. <laughs> but I love that there's this an engagement with Los Angeles and how I'm sure it influences your work all the time to have this constant questioning and engagement with the city and trying to understand yes. whether or not there is this common language. I mean, we talked about soccer earlier, yeah, which I'm sure also gives you a certain framework for understanding Los Angeles. But yeah. do you imagine that within all of this wackiness, there is still something of a local architecture to Los Angeles that people either think is the local architecture and they might ask for when you're talking with people in Vancouver or other areas or just kind of a perceived idea of a local architecture? I would say, I would say no, I don't think that the world sees a local architecture anymore, especially in the internet age where even the architects that, that are the most well-known here, you know, build more outside of LA and, and, you know, more than half of our work is, is planned for, you know, projects outside of Los Angeles. So you could say it's a, a case of the global, but, but I also don't want to, you know, say that, that people who, who work and practice here and who mostly build here are somehow not contributing, you know, in that way. Probably there's a little bit of an idea about perception vis-a-vis -vis media, which is, which is, you know, unavoidable because unless you're on the ground here, you might not, you know, know, let's say, quote unquote, what the gestalt reality is. Is it more this? Is it more that? Is it, is it uh, a project of perpetuating historical modernism and let's say LA becoming 
to a certain extent, I think maybe what was presented, you know, in Pacific time two years ago was a bit like Chicago might talk about themselves mm. as, you know, the progenitors of the high rise and and of a certain type of modernism. We did the same thing. And what I was worried about was that the rest of the world would think we went into protect mode and we went into classic design mode and everything was put on an altar and that, you know, L.A. wasn't prone to, to risk anymore. And I mean, I don't think that that truly happened. But on the other hand, it was a substantial enough effort to awaken design where even the future, the idea of the future, you know, was exposed as finished, you know, over or it never came a time that had never come. And I don't think there's any any specific school of thought that seems to be perceivable prior to the Internet. It might have been seen as a school just about pure formalism hmm. and uh, nerve and risk and and because uh, we weren't building social housing and or, or even low cost housing. It was, you know, the exotica of, of uh, design. And that that legacy is still operative at some level, but I don't think that it defines you know, the identity. So I would say generally, I don't think, I think it's vague. Yeah. And I think we that's kind of how we want to keep it, right? Like <laughs> we don't want to get any more specific. Yeah. This has been great. I really appreciate you coming into our studio today and talking with us. And by us, I mean the royal we that we use yes. when we address the uh, the podcast audience. And one of the things we like to ask people when we're um, having interviews is if there's anything that they're reading or listening to or perhaps watching that they'd like to share with listeners. It doesn't have to be architectural at all, mm -hmm. just like whatever you're immersed in right now. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm reading a book called Cruel Optimism. Do you know this book? No. It's uh, by a professor at the University of Chicago named Lauren Berlant. And its premise basically is a challenging book. It's a confrontational book. It's not imperious and, and deeply political. But the idea that optimism, you know, in, in terms of a better life or in terms of the democratic project or whatever it might be, you know, certainly it's, a, it's, it's inflecting, you know, the American way of life, that there is a cruelty involved in persisting with the very thing that you want can produce, you know, frustrations for you. And even just with that as a kind of preamble, and she sets that out at the beginning and then goes through a lot of specifics. Part of the reason why I picked it up is because I thought cruel optimism, isn't that what architects, <laughs> how architects operate? Don't we, if you, if you capitulate to you know, the, the pessimist, you'll quit, right? And uh, being optimistic, uh, patient and managing restlessness with all of that. And, and I was curious and I was transposing the ideas of, let's say, optimism for architecture's future, like it will be sustainable, built in humane environments and on all the things that we want to move forward, that it will be aesthetically interesting. And, you know, we want technology transfer and we want it to be more like a cell phone and less like this and, you know, on and on. And it's been pretty fascinating. Another book is called Reality Hunger by David Shields. And it's like 600 little aphorism, aphorisms from a few lines to a paragraph. And quite a lot of it's about the the issues of appropriation and plagiarism in writing. Oh. And um, Jonathan Lethem's book on the ecstasy of influence, which he wrote a few years ago, trying to get around uh, the issue of difficulty in writing and heavy postmodern ways of writing and getting into feeling freer to 
make new things happen. Of course, the critics, on the other hand, are still plenty and and kind of talking about uh, a paucity of ideas or music being the same thing, regurgitation. But you have to read it a little closer to understand that it's a project and it's not just being about lazy, nor is it about standing on the shoulders of, you know, people who came before you. It's something more uh, challenging than that. And the reason why I've been reading these books is because I'm just finishing a big uh, monograph that that I've written of which, um, it, you know, it's trying to make clear or make provocative all the ideas in many respects that we're talking about. And I look to them to see how quotation or versioning, et cetera, works in a, in a powerful and honest way and, and not a, well, I'm just an architect and I don't know how to write, so I need to just, you know, do that. I think there are talented writers out there who, you know, are thinking about that, just the same in architecture as well. So, and I would say that I'm I'm not a, I'm more, I'm reading more now than, than ever. And I'm not, and I haven't historically been a voracious reader, probably uh, more of a surfer. And now I'm a little bit more of a deep sea diver in some things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even though, so you don't, um, are you more interested, are you able to read these in physical form? Or are you reading them just out of curiosity in the ebook or something? No, I, I, I buy the books and, you know, they're good for plane flights and an hour here or, you know, there. Generally, I'll, I'll, I'll read a chunk and then sit down and write or read a chunk and then write and then work on these soundtrack things that I'm doing. And, and I like to, to mix, you know, media and stuff. I mean, when I'm on a plane, even I'm, I'm doing some soundtrack stuff on my iPad and I'll read for two hours and then, and then get into my software and, you know, play the keyboard while I'm over the Atlantic, you know, on my iPad or something. That's that's the age we live in. We that's can play every media at any altitude. It's Pretty fantastic. Much. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, we're all, um, I guess a long time ago, you would have kept being an ADD quiet. Now everybody's like, where's a t-shirt and goes, I, <laughs> I'm, you know, that. As, uh, as many digits as we have on our hands, we exactly. will have devices. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was so great to talk with you. Thank you, Amelia. It's nice to be here. Thanks a lot, Neil. Okay. Thanks for listening to our very first episode of Archonnect Sessions One-to-One -One with Neil Denari, and a special thanks to Syark for helping coordinate the interview. Dani Lovoynov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One-to-One. -One. You can learn more about this week's interview in our show notes and listen to new episodes coming out every Monday. To keep up with podcasting news from Archonnect, follow us on Twitter through at ArcSessions or hashtag ArchonnectSessions, and let us know what you think by rating us on iTunes. You can also email us through connect at Thanks again for listening.